Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of the new AKS and Stark Law's final rules, key takeaways. On November 20th, 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, issued a final rule related to the Medicare Physician Self-Referral Law, or Stark Law. Nearly simultaneously, the Office of the Inspector General, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS-OIG, released a final rule which amends various safe harbors to the Federal Anti-Kickback Statute, or AKS. The changes appeared to be based in large part on value-based healthcare delivery and payment systems. On this episode, we will highlight the key changes along with similarities and differences in the language between the two final rules, examine the new AKS safe harbors and Stark Law exceptions, compare and contrast critical items found in both final rules, and appreciate the risks of non-compliance. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this episode, we're spotlighting Super Ninja Julie Garcia, Business Office Manager at Coastal Vascular Center. Julie says Coastal Vascular Center has three office locations, and yet the whole group works as a team. They all respond well to the compliance updates and changes, and I'm fortunate to have such a close-knit, caring group professionals to work with every day. Congratulations, Julie. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So let's get on with it. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Hello, Catherine, and it's always a pleasure for me to be here, and I appreciate you and First Healthcare Compliance having me as a guest. Thank you. I love having you on First Talk Compliance. So Rachel, could you give us a high-level overview of the final rules? Sure. The two final rules are separately published in the Federal Register, and the Stark final rule is found at 85 Federal Register 77492, and the AKS, or Anti-Kickback Statute, new final rule, which was published by HHS, Office of the Inspector General, is found at 85 Federal Register 77684. The publication date for both of these laws was December 2nd of 2020. Now, if we think about the Stark Law, by now, most people know that it deals with referrals from a physician 
for designated health services. There's no intent standard for an overpayment. It's actually known as a strict liability and it's a civil statute only. By way of contrast, the anti-kickback statute prohibits referrals from anyone. It applies to all government programs and not just Medicare. It involves any items or services, and there is an intent requirement because that statute is both civil and criminal in nature. So if we were to go into some of the broad brushstrokes of what the new final rules address, well, first and foremost, the primary focus for most of the safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute or exceptions under the Stark rule really fall into a value-based arrangement. And so that is one area to be absolutely honed in on. Another area is what are known as cybersecurity donations. And each of those laws have really two different types of cybersecurity donations. So would it be helpful, do you think, for the audience if I defined what a value-based enterprise was and a value-based arrangement? Yes, I think that would be great. If you could explain any and all definitions, that would be great. Okay, perfect. So first and foremost, anyone who reads these 1,600 pages of regs needs to appreciate the concept of what's known as a value-based enterprise. And a value-based enterprise means two or more, and it's an acronym, VBE, so you need two or more VBE participants that collaborate to achieve at least one value-based purpose, each of which is a party to a value-based agreement with the other or at least one other VBE participant in the value-based enterprise that have an accountable body or person responsible for the financial and operational oversight of the value-based enterprise and that have a governing document that describes the value-based enterprise and how VBE participants intend to achieve its value-based purposes. Well, first and foremost, it's important as we break down these four elements to hone in on what a value-based participant is. And a VBE participant is a person or entity that engages in at least one value-based activity as part of a value-based enterprise. A value-based purpose means any of the following. Coordinating and managing the care of a target patient population, improving the quality of care for a target patient population, appropriately reducing the cost to or growth in expenditures of payers without reducing the quality of care for a target patient population or transitioning from healthcare delivery and payment mechanisms based on the volume of items and services provided to mechanisms based on the quality of care and control of 
cost of care for a target patient population. So we have a new term within the value-based purpose, and that is target patient population. And what I, it's easier for me to say what it doesn't mean rather than what it does mean. And having structured a couple of these, I can tell you that what I did was to work with the clients not to target insurance or government payers. That's something you don't want to do because that can bring you under the umbrella of potential arrangements that are in fact unlawful in substance, even though by form they may look okay. You want to look at specific clinical areas that you really want to hone in on. And you can have more than one, but you need to make sure that those populations are parsed out. And you also need a, a mechanism and steps as to how you're going to help achieve the coordination and or the quality of care management in these patient populations to achieve better outcomes. So one item that is of particular importance is the VBE participant. I'm going to go back there for a moment because this is absolutely crucial for anyone who practices in this area of the law as well as any consulting companies and or financial valuation entities. The definition of VBE participant under Stark is broader than it is under the anti-kickback statute. So another item to bear in mind whenever you're structuring one of these is to make sure that you're meeting all of the requirements for Stark and the anti-kickback statute. So a VBE participant under Stark is defined to mean a person or entity that engages in at least one value-based activity as part of a value-based enterprise. The definition of VBE participant finalized in the final rule does not exclude any specific persons, entities, or organizations from qualifying as a VBE participant. Now, that's where the similarity changes between the Stark Law, which says we're not excluding anyone, to the anti-kickback statute. By way of contrast, HHS OIG indicated that the following entities are on their ineligible entity list. First, pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, and wholesalers. These are generally referred to throughout the AKS as pharmaceutical companies. Pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs, laboratory companies, pharmacies that primarily compound drugs or primarily dispense compounded drugs, sometimes referred to as compounding pharmacies, manufacturers of devices or medical supplies, entities or individuals that sell DME POS other than a pharmacy or a physician, provider, or other entity that primarily services, all of which remain eligible. This is generally referred to as DME POS companies throughout the final rule. 
And finally, medical device distributors or wholesalers that are not otherwise manufacturers of medical devices or medical supplies. And one specific area that was noted in the final rule were physician-owned distributorships. Now, there has been a lot of attention placed on those. There's case law. There were hearings before the Senate, and HHS OIG has also set out opinions saying these are not acceptable because of the high rate of referrals based on volume or value. And typically, you see this in the medical device sector with surgical specialties. So the key takeaways on the value-based front are defining your value-based enterprise or VBE, basically an arrangement. How that is structured varies depending on the number of parties, the complexity of the parties. Do you have accountable care organizations or different practices, or is this something that's being set up in addition to? But there are a lot of aspects to consider, and overall, you need to make sure that one is meeting the safe harbors of AKS and the exceptions under Stark Law. Okay, very good. Are there differences that you could go over between AKS and Stark Law final rules? And then, if so, what one in particular really stands out so that listeners can be aware of of this? Okay. So one of the biggest landmines is the one that I really just emphasized, and that is the value-based participant under the Stark final rule and the anti-kickback final rule. Because again, Stark does not have an ineligible list, but it's crucial to note that you have to read the entirety of the final new rule. What I found is that oftentimes, as with other laws, one part of the regulation or rule will refer back to another part, and it really can can change the context. So in terms of a landmine, that is a huge landmine because if you construct something, even though it may be okay under Stark, it's really no different than the landscape now. If it's in violation of the anti-kickback statute, that's actually more problematic because that's a criminal statute. The other area of very significant interest has been the cybersecurity donations. And the reason that it is of interest is, A, the 21st Century Cures Act that I know you and I have spoken about before, and I'm sure we'll be doing another presentation on in 2021. Another item is the uptick in the number of cybersecurity attacks and threats to the healthcare sector, which is something that we saw an exponential increase in, even going back to April of 2020 when COVID hit. There was a 400% increase in the number of attacks. So, why is this important? Because the meeting the respective exceptions or safe harbors centers around the value-based enterprise or value-based arrangement and reducing the risk of cyber attacks. So if we look at the Stark Law's new exceptions, really there are two. 
We have the newly established exception for donations of cybersecurity technology and related services. And two, the amended, the existing exception for electronic health records, items, and services. So again, very, very different, but it's something that people really need to be aware of. In terms of the donation for cybersecurity technology, basically there are a plethora of elements that need to be met, including non-monetary remuneration, which relates to the technology and related services that are necessary and used predominantly to implement, maintain, and reestablish effective cybersecurity. A written cybersecurity donation agreement, which does not take into account the volume or value of referrals or other business generated between the parties and other requirements. It's crucial to note that for these donations, physicians are not required to cost share in the software or the hardware. So again, there are some very specific words here cannot be based on volume or value of referrals. That's something that has been inherent with both Stark and the anti-kickback statutes really since their inceptions. Now, looking at the amendments to the existing EHR exception, basically five things were clarified. First, cybersecurity software and hardware donations are permitted, and again, this is, goes back to that interplay between different provisions. The December 31, 2021 sunset provision was removed, modifying the definitions of EHR and interoperable. For anyone who has been part of the program formerly known as Meaningful Use, interoperability was one of the hallmark features of that program. Modifying the 15% physician contribution requirement, but not eliminating it, and permitting select donations of replacement technology. If we look at the AKS, there are also two new cybersecurity safe harbors. First, cybersecurity technologies and services permits non-monetary donations of cybersecurity technology. Again, those are selective. There are related services and associated hardware. A key aspect of this safe harbor is that the donations must be necessary and used predominantly to implement, maintain, or re-establish effective cybersecurity. So we see a lot of complementary language between the Stark final rule and the AKS final rule on this point. Again, the objective has to be reduced to a writing, include the scope of the donation, the contribution required by the recipient of the donation, and each party's responsibilities. So here, just as I said, with the value-based enterprise and those governing documents in your agreements where you want to make sure you're including the Stark Law language and the AKS language and requirements, you want to do something similar here. Then again, the second safe harbor under AKS, like its Stark counterpart, is actually more of a modification of the electronic health record safe 
harbor. That relates to updating and removing provisions regarding interoperability, removing the sunset provision and prohibition on donations of equivalent technology, and clarifying protections for cybersecurity technology and services included in an electronic health record arrangement. So, Rachel, uh, I know that you have so much experience in this. So from your perspective, what safe harbors or exceptions are the most difficult to grasp and implement? Oh, that is a very good question. I think that with anything new, there's always some uncertainty when entering into these types of arrangements. Uh, the one area that really stood out for me, again, was the value-based area. But more importantly, <laughs> there are two types of arrangements. One's called value-based arrangements with substantial downside financial risk. And another one is value-based arrangements with full financial risk. And as you know, I teach bioethics to medical students, something that I absolutely enjoy doing. And when I sit there and think, oh my gosh, in addition to learning about ethics and some of the fundamental laws, they now have to understand complex finance. For me, and because of probably my MBA side, these two areas really require physicians and hospitals and other types of providers to engage knowledgeable attorneys, knowledgeable consultants, and knowledgeable finance valuation experts. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality complementary educational resources we help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Rachel V. Rose, JD MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, about the new AKS and Stark Law's final rules, key takeaways. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So Rachel, has there been widespread adoption of value-based care in the commercial and private sector, as well as with government programs since the Affordable Care Act? What's your opinion? Catherine, that's an excellent question. And absolutely, the Affordable Care Act was really one of the two main laws, which was the impetus to change from our traditional fee-for-service to value-based care. In 2008, the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, also known as MIPA, was passed. And then the Affordable Care Act was signed into law in March of 2010. And as a result of that, we've seen a plethora of value-based programs which have been implemented. For example, alternative payment models. We've seen end-stage renal disease quality incentive programs, hospital-acquired condition reduction programs, hospital value-based purchasing programs, hospital readmission 
reduction programs, merit-based incentive payment systems, skilled nursing facility, value-based purchasing programs, as well as value modifier or physician value-based modifier programs. And that's really all within the Medicare space. Having said that, whenever we transition that to the commercial sector, as we all know, what happens in Medicare and Medicaid typically follows suit in the commercial sector in one way or another. And here, this is a trend that has grown really over the last five years in particular. So I have no doubt that we'll see more and more private insurance companies or third-party payers adopting more of a value-based system. And how should organizations go about implementing the elements to meet the safeguards? So as I indicated from the outset, I recommend really having the requirements of the Stark law exceptions and the anti-kickback safe harbors really side by side. And depending on what items you're working on, making sure that you're meeting both of those, because as we've seen in the past and what continues with these new rules is that just because it's an exception under Stark does not mean there's an equivalent safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute or vice versa. So it's imperative to make sure that you're complying with both laws and not with one laws. Then from there, just as I stepped out the different definitions for value-based enterprise, value-based participant, the arrangement, the governing document, the value-based purpose, the target patient population, make sure all of those items are defined in your agreements so that you know that you're working in an above-board manner. And I actually recommend to my own clients to meet quarterly at least to see how you're meeting those objectives. And the purpose is twofold. A, you get to see progress or if you need to tweak something or if you're seeing a trend with patients that you didn't notice before. And B, it can actually help with those value-based programs if people are enrolled in the ones I just mentioned with either the federal government or the commercial plans because the reimbursement would increase. Okay, and how about liability? What is the potential liability for different entities in relation to False Claims Act lawsuits? That is a great question, and the answer is it depends. (laughs) It Mm. depends on, first, whether or not you're doing a value-based enterprise, and if so, are you looking at the ineligible list under the anti-kickback statute? That's the first place I would start, because if you're on what I call the do not disturb list, then you probably don't want to be entering into a contract, right? So that's an easy first step there. If a an entity enters into one of those contracts and they're on the do not disturb list or the ineligible list, that could in fact create problems down the line. So that's something to be very aware of. And HHS OIG is clearly in the text not as forgiving as Stark and CMS on the parties involved in value-based enterprises. Another area that you can see potential liability in under the False Claims Act is if it's a sham arrangement 
or if the donations in the cybersecurity donations are being made improperly. From my perspective, those would be low-hanging fruit for the government agencies. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel, as always. It's a real pleasure to have you here, so thank you. Catherine, it's always my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Katherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind. <laughs>